Would you please stand with me for the reading of the scripture? Our text this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. If you've been with us, you know that we are walking our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, we come to uh, passages that really test our philosophy of preaching here. Because if you're a member of OGC or if you're in the Discover OGC class, you know that we have a great value for teaching the whole counsel of God. We, we walk through books of the Bible. Our hope is to not skip anything because it seems hard or uncomfortable. Our hope is also that I wouldn't just camp out on lots of subjects that I'm excited about. We want to take things as they come in the Word of God. It's called expository preaching. We want to expose people to the Bible. But if I'm honest with you, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, we come to a text that if it was up to me, I'd just skip. <laughs> okay, because I'm a people pleaser at heart. And, uh, you know, I, th- these aren't passages that are going to fill the seats and, and bridge all these cultural gaps. But that's all right, because our, our call, as a, certainly as a church, and even more so as someone who is called to teach the Bible, is not to please people and not to fill seats. My call is to deliver the full counsel of God. So that is what I am aiming to do, uh, obviously with a great deal of caution and love and care uh, on a topic as misunderstood um, and a topic that involves so many wounds as the topic of sex obviously does. So I want to remind us what we've been doing here. Jesus, in in the Sermon on the Mount, he has been reminding us over and over that we are a part of a different kingdom. We are a part of a a different kingdom with different values, different ethics, with with a whole different economy. And in this economy, in this Christian worldview, it's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Do these things, don't do these things, and God will like you then, and then you'll get in. The Christian economy, just it has a higher view of humanity. It has a higher view of love, and as it pertains to our our text this morning, it has a higher view of human sexuality. So remember that this whole section, this whole part of the Sermon on the Mount, it was preceded by Jesus saying, surely you will not enter the kingdom of God unless your righteousness exceeds even that of the the scribes and Pharisees. And so we have to ask ourselves, all right, in what way is it then that our righteousness is supposed to exceed theirs? And, and as I said last week, this is where I would really love to insert, well, you know, it's Christ's righteousness being imputed to you through belief. But I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I think you can connect it, but I don't, I don't think that is his main point. His main point is that the Pharisees, they look good on the outside, but their hearts are dark. Their hearts are evil. And he says, you know, he, well, last week he used the fifth commandment as his way of communicating this. They, they wanted to make the law manageable. They wanted to be able to say, I'm a law keeper. And they point to the fifth commandment and they'd say, look, I haven't murdered anybody, so I'm good. And Jesus is saying, yeah, maybe you haven't murdered anyone, but you commit murder in your heart. 
So you're not okay. You're not good. And then this week, Jesus is doing the exact same thing through the sixth commandment. You know, they're going to say, look, we, it's not like we committed adultery. We haven't, we haven't done that. We're, we've kept the sixth commandment. And Jesus is saying, maybe you haven't committed the physical act of adultery, but you are daily committing adultery in your heart. And the way that we can see that is through your thoughts of lustful intent. That's what Jesus is going for in this passage. And my goodness, I mean, if, if there is a topic that I need to walk more carefully through, I, I don't know what it is because our, our culture is changing so fast. The, the way our culture views sex is so different than the way that, that we view sex. So when I'm talking with anyone really at this point, it could be a college student, it could be somebody in the church, it could be my child, it could be at a conference I feel like I'm walking through a field where there is never, you're never more than a foot away from a landmine. <laughs> and, it, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't engage our culture on what the Bible says about human sexuality, but it does mean that, that we need to do it with extra care, with extra thought, with extra grace. Because at this point, if you hold a truly biblical view of human sexuality, you are in the vast minority of the society that we live in. And I was reminded of this fact in the strongest possible way. About a year ago, Angela and I were speaking at a conference. We, in this particular talk we were doing together, and it was on sex. There were about a thousand people here, and we finished uh, maybe 15 minutes early. And I knew that I was going to finish early. And so I had the, the planners put a phone number up on the screen. And they didn't know it was my phone number, but it was my phone number. And I said, hey, you know, after the talk, now that we've finished, I would just like to take any question you have. <laughs> any question you have on the topic of sex, just send it in and I'll just start taking them. And that's what I did. <laughs> and remember, this is a, you know, quote unquote Christian conference. And when I say there is nothing that they did not ask, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think you could think of a question in this room on the topic of a sex that did not come through my phone. And, and I'm not just like, saying one, one question. You name the question. I had three to 10 people asking it. And so I just started to answer them. And, and they weren't new questions because, you know, my days as a college minister, I fielded a lot of questions on sex. And so I just started to go and I'm taking all these questions. And I found out later the, the planners who work the hardest on these conferences. I mean, we just come in and speak and leave. They do all the, the real hard work. They're texting between themselves. Davis has gone rogue. I don't know what we're supposed to do. We've never heard these topics come up at this conference before. And then I look over at my sweet wife. I don't think a human being could be a brighter shade of red at this point. <laughs> because she's from the deep south where you don't talk about such things ever really, but particularly in a, in a public environment. And what I was reminded of in that moment is how far even a Christian conference has gone from understanding a biblical view of human sexuality. And if that's true, then then when we come to a passage like this, we have to begin by teaching a biblical view of sexuality before we can even begin to understand what Jesus is talking about when he says that you are committing adultery in your hearts through looking with lustful intent. So I wanna try and explain what Jesus is doing by first looking at God's plan for sex because we need to understand this again to understand secondly, what is the lie of lust? What is it that Jesus is guarding us against? And then finally, when we understand that, I want to look at, at the real path 
to true satisfaction. So those are my three points. We'll start with the plan for sex. In short, God's plan for sex is that he designed it and he meant it to be good. (laughs) That's God's plan. It's a good thing. And we need to be careful that we're not flippant in our view of sex and that we're not prudish in our view of sex. You know, we obviously live in a very flippant culture when it comes to sex. It is for, I can prove this. If you are a single adult now, there is more embarrassment and even shame if you are a virgin and a single adult than if you're a single adult with multiple partners. Because our, our culture has a flippant view of sex. And, and a flippant view of sex, it, it diminishes the value of it. But on the other side of it, if we go to the prudish extreme, it devalues it just as much. And Christian history is full of people going to the prudish extreme. You have people like Thomas Aquinas, who who believed that sex existed solely for reproductive purposes. So if you're not trying to actively have children, there's no place for this in your marriage. And I don't know if this is true, but church tradition tells us that the church father Origen went so far as to castrate himself, motivated by passages like this to be able to do whatever he could to refrain from that activity, which he deemed bad. Now, my hunch is that not many people in this room are going to be really tempted by Thomas Aquinas's view and certainly not by Origen's view. But if we're not careful, we as Christians, we can communicate a very prudish um, view of this topic. It's really easy for us to communicate to our children that sex is bad. It's bad and you don't want to do it until you get married and then somehow it becomes good, but we don't really understand how that works. We don't want to communicate that, but we often do. And I mean, we go to places like the Song of Solomon, and I don't know how you could come up with a prudish view of sex from reading the Song of Solomon. The author of this book is really excited about the topic, and it doesn't seem like it's motivated out of purely reproductive reasons. And my, my friends who know Hebrew a lot better than I do, they would tell me that if you were to literally translate words like, that, that we read in English, caress and hug, uh, the way that probably they were received in the Hebrew culture, all of us in this room would be as beet red as my wife Angela was on that stage. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is encouraging couples, don't, don't abstain from this activity because if you do, then Satan can get Get a foothold in your life. So nothing, nothing in the Bible would lead us to a prudish view of this topic. God wants sex to be good and he wants it to be experienced in the most magnificent possible way. And so what is that way? Before we understand the way that it's most magnificent, It's like algebra. We've got to understand one thing before we go here. We have to understand the design of marriage. We have to understand what marriage exists for before we can even talk about the role of sex. It's funny, I was thinking this morning, I have a 65-minute talk on the design of marriage, and I am going to try and give the the nutshell three-minute version of it right here. But in short, God has made marriage. He has designed marriage to point to him. He's designed marriage to paint a picture to help us to understand who he is, how he loves us in a more significant way. And so you may realize this, but the Bible, it starts and ends with marriage. Marriage, Marriages act as biblical bookends to the Bible. And you could rightly say that 
that the overarching, the, the arc narrative of the Bible is one of marriage. In Ephesians 5, Paul is teaching on marriage. And at the very end, he says this mystery, obviously talking about marriage, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he's saying very bluntly, which you can easily infer all over scripture, that marriage exists to paint a picture of Christ and the church. When we enter into a marriage or we're around a really good marriage, we should understand something about the gospel of Jesus Christ more significantly. Because the whole, the whole point of the Bible is that Jesus Christ has a passion. He has a love for his treasured possession, for his bride, the church. And he loves his church with a love that is sacrificial, that is never ending, and that will never fail. In the same way that, that we're told that we need to leave our parents and cleave to our wives or your husband's, That's a picture of us leaving our old way of life and cleaving to Jesus Christ who will always love us, who will never let us go and never fail us. Marriage is meant to point to God. And so we have to understand that. The whole purpose of of marriage, it exists to communicate this oneness that will exist at some point between Jesus Christ and his treasured possession, the church. And so... In our marriages, we are working to cultivate that oneness. When we have sex in marriage, that is a mechanism designed to enhance the oneness. It is a bonding agent. You know, when we, when we get married, somehow we are, we are one flesh. We are one emotionally, psychologically, financially, uh, spiritually, and certainly physically. And what sex is designed to do is to re-communicate that commitment over and over and over again in the high, an environment of highest trust and highest commitment, which we call the covenant of marriage. It is designed to re-communicate that commitment to one another over and over and over again so that we can more significantly and more fruitfully communicate what marriage is supposed to communicate the oneness that exists between Jesus Christ and his bride. That's the point. And this is the reason that Genesis 2 says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So sex is meant to reinforce the covenant that we make when we marry somebody. And I love it when science catches up with the Bible. Because research has proven that when we have sex, we release something called oxytocin. That is a chemical in our brain that literally makes us like someone more. And you know what they call it? The bonding agent. In science now, the most secular science would say that unless there is significant trauma in our past, that it's not possible to have a one night stand and just not think of the person again. Because there is a design to everything that's going on. God has designed sex to be a covenant renewal that communicates the gospel in in one of the most significant ways I can think of because when a couple comes together and a couple is fully exposed and fully revealed yet fully loved and fully accepted, what are they putting on display? 
the gospel because in the gospel we are fully exposed fully revealed in front of a holy and perfect God yet in Jesus Christ we are fully accepted and fully loved that's the design and I know that I'm opening myself up to a ton of questions that I would answer in my 65 minute version of this talk and I hope to address some of those questions at the very end especially to you single people but for the moment I'm saying we have to understand this design but before we can understand what Jesus is guarding us against But the design is that sex is good, that it's significant, that it has value, and that it has purpose. So with that in mind, now let's turn and look at the lie of lust. So this word lust in our English translations, the most literal way we could probably just uh, translate it is an over-desire. It's a good thing, but there is an over-desire that can take us outside of the bounds of the design. And, and when there's an over-desire, there can be harm that comes upon us when we get outside of the plan, the design that, that sex was created in. This is why Jesus says in, in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, the Pharisees have been minimizing the sixth commandment, saying we, we haven't done that thing, so we're good. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you, you're, you're not understanding, as, as we read in the catechism, that the sixth commandment isn't only about the act. Sixth commandment encompasses everything that leads up to that act, starting with looking with lustful intent. So what is that thing? If that's, if that's where this path begins, I want to be really clear about what, what this thing is, looking with lustful intent. Because we can certainly look at beauty and not lust. You know, all of us can begrudgingly admit if our brothers are handsome and our sisters are pretty. And we're not committing any kind of sinful act in that. And I think we can, we can look at a painting of a beautiful woman or a sculpture of a handsome man or even a real live specimen and admire the beauty that God has given that, that person or that painting or that sculpture. But it's lustful intent when it goes from admiration to fantasy. Fantasizing about something that you shouldn't have and that would ultimately harm you. That's when we've turned this corner to lustful intent. And C.S. Lewis, he... he says it a different way that I think is really helpful in his book, Mere Christianity, talking about over-desire and lust. He says, imagine if you went to a a new culture, a new society, and you notice these people in this dark off alley, they're, they're going into this door. So you follow them, you go into this door, you have to pay some money to get into this dark room and you're seated in chairs and at the front of the room, there's some closed curtains and then finally the curtains open. And in front of you, is a modestly covered piece of bacon. And then they began to uncover the bacon and then recover the bacon and then show you a little more of the bacon and then then cover it up completely. And then finally, at the climax of the show, the bacon is fully exposed and everybody gets to see the full piece of bacon. What would you conclude about that society? I, I think we would all agree bacon is a good gift from God. But their desires have gone a bit haywire here. This is an over-desire for bacon. And the reason that lust is a lie is because lust, it promises something that it can't deliver on. 
So just in the same way that bacon is not going to satisfy this crowd the way that they want bacon to satisfy them, neither can anything else if it's lustful. And specifically, if we're in the area of sex, Jesus is saying this is a lie that will not give you what you're longing for. It promises something that it will never, that will never deliver on. And so let's stick in the, the food area for a little bit because we have lots of good gifts you know that we should enjoy in life but if our if our desires become an over desire it's going to be not only unhelpful it could be harmful and so you, you take food in general food's good it's a gift I love eating I think we're going to be eating all through the new heavens and new earth but if we have an over desire for food we're going to eat more than we should we're going to eat kinds of foods that we shouldn't eat we might even be inclined to eat food that's gone bad and so Food is a good gift, but if we have an over-desire, it can harm us. And the same is true with every gift that God has given us, including sex. This is the lie of lust. And it's not, it's not just a married person problem here. You know, it's not simply that when we give in to the lie of lust, we're, we're breaking a covenant with our spouse. Something bigger is going on here, according to Jesus. When we give in to the lie of lust, when we pursue our lustful desires, we're breaking our covenant with our God in the form of the sixth commandment. God has designed sex for human flourishing, but he's designed it to operate within a paradigm within parameters. And so I could probably give, I, I thought of about 10 ways this week that I think sex, when we pursue these lustful desires, can ultimately harm us. But for the sake of time, I want to camp out on two. Two ways, very specifically, that when we pursue our thoughts with lustful intent, how that comes back to harm us. And the first is that it disables this bonding agent. So remember that, that it exists to recommit ourselves to each other to bond us together in in a in a chemical way in an emotional way in a a spiritual way but just like anything else when we use something outside of the way that it was designed to use it doesn't work the way that it's supposed to be used it's just logical if you get a new car and you take it off road you're, you're going to impede its original design it's not it's not going to take you as far for as long a period of time if we use it in that way and very hesitantly, I'm going to also say the same thing about sticky notes. You know, the more you apply the sticky note, the more the main function becomes disabled. And I say I'm doing that hesitantly because we're not talking about the value of a person here. We're not talking about the dignity of a person. I'm simply saying that there is a function that sex provides in the form of a bonding agent. And the more we use it outside of that design, the less it works the way that it's supposed to. So let me give you two very clear examples Let's say you're dating somebody and you're having sex and you're not married. Well, you are going to be drawn to that person on an emotional level in a way that you wouldn't be in the absence of sex. That's logical. So it could be (laughs) that you choose to marry somebody that in the absence of sex, you would not choose to marry because the bonding agent is doing what the bonding agent is supposed to do, but outside of the commitment that has already been made in the confines of marriage. So that's, that's one way that bonding agent wouldn't be working the way that it's supposed to. Another way is if we're engaging multiple partners. If we're engaging multiple partners, the purpose of the bond to link us to one person in particular 
is slowly dismantled. And so we begin to not feel the bonding effect the way that it was designed for us to feel both with the person that we're engaging with and ultimately with God. And I'm gonna come back there in a minute. So the first way that this lustful intent, it it affects us if we are pursuing these desires is that it disables the bonding agent. Secondly, it chips away at our humanity. Pursuing these desires ultimately chips away at our humanity we are the image bearers of God and we are, we are made to communicate certain things about God, certain things about his, his character. The more human we are, the more, the more we communicate these things. But the more we pursue lustful fantasies, the more it chips away at our humanity and the less we're able to, to showcase the character of God the way that we were designed to showcase. And I don't know anywhere that I can go to to communicate this more clearly than the epidemic of pornography in our society. Currently, research shows that 40 million Americans are engaging in pornography on a regular basis. One third of those 40 million are women. So it's not just a male issue. 35% of all internet downloads are for pornographic material. The average American views 90 minutes of pornography a week you know I've wondered if you take college students out of that maybe it goes down to like 45 minutes but it's still a problem and one in four google searches is for this kind of material so I can't overstate not only the usage but the effect of this usage on us as individuals and on our society as a whole and again it's interesting that research is catching up to what Christians have been saying for a long time because The secular world used to say that access to this kind of stuff is good. It helps people uh, satisfy desires that they wouldn't otherwise be able to satisfy. But now the research is saying that's actually not what's happening at all. It's not satisfying anything. It's just amplifying all these desires and we don't know what to do with it. And there are real movements to take it off the internet that go way outside of the Christian world because we see the harm that it's doing. And I could talk about the harm of pornography, literally, I think, for hours. But, but I want to make this really specific point. How does it chip away at our humanity? And it happens on both sides of the screen. So if on the receiving end, if you're a man, you are generally made to communicate something about the glory and character of God. And I, and I think this is one of the reasons God had two genders. <laughs> There's so much glory to communicate. He couldn't do it just through man. He needed men and women to, generally speaking, communicate different parts of who he is. And men generally communicate something about his, his pursuit. God is not a passive God. He's a pursuing God. And so men are, were meant to reflect this. And here in this fallen earth, our pursuit of a female, it involves an element of risk because we, we, need to, we will be risking rejection in this, in this process, some of us more than others, <laughs> But when pornography comes on the scene, we're able to pursue sexual gratification without any risk. And in doing so, with every click, we're chipping away at our humanity because we're becoming more passive and we're reflecting less and less the character of God that we're supposed to communicate. Or a woman. A woman is meant to communicate something about God's kindness and loving care and nurturing qualities. But in pornography, the only person being loved is yourself. So we're chipping away at the design of women, the design in which women are are made to flourish. That's on the receiving end. But what about 
on the other end of that screen. I mean, nobody grows up aspiring to be on the other end of that screen. I mean, people are on the other end of that screen because they have been abused, because they have drug problems, and in some cases, because they are straight up enslaved. And every time we click on that material, we are funding the people who control them, and in some cases, enslave them. And so on both sides of the screen, we are chipping away at their humanity and at our humanity. And Jesus doesn't stop here. He acknowledges that there is a logical end to our chipping away at our humanity. And this is going to be the heaviest thing that I say this morning, but we have to understand what Jesus is saying to get the gravity of what he's saying. So stay with me. Jesus is making two connections here to lustful intent. The first is to adultery, which is logical. That's a logical conclusion. But he goes beyond adultery and he actually connects lust to hell, okay? And this, this I know can sound really extreme, but this is Jesus's words, not mine. Look at verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to first say, I'm really glad you're here. I, I want you to see the ins and outs of what we believe, and I want this to be a really safe place for you. And I can imagine that if, if you're here and, and you just heard me say that, you could very well be thinking, yeah, here we go again. <laughs> here come the scare tactics. Don't have sex or you're going to hell. And if that's you, I want to, I have sympathy with you because that, that was my view for a long time. I thought a lot of what was taught in the Christian church was simply scare tactics to be able to control people until I understood how much deeper Jesus is going here. Jesus is saying there is a logical conclusion to our chipping away of our humanity because there is a design. If we're in the kingdom of God, there's a design, a design in which humans flourish. But the more we put God's design aside for a plan of our own design, the logical next step is that there would be a hardening of our own heart to that design. And the Bible says that God, if, if that is what we do, he will hand us over to the desires of our hearts. And so as our hearts get colder and our hearts get harder, there is a point of no return. And the logical conclusion to a walking away from God's plan for our lives is total separation from God and his goodness, which is hell. And Jesus doesn't want that for any of us. He wants this message to be a call back into his kingdom, into his plan, and into human flourishing. That's the hope. It's, it's not a scare tactic. It's a call for the heart to come back to where it belongs. God designed sex to be good for the body and the soul. But when we separate body and soul, we kill both. That's the lie of lust tells us that we can separate the body and soul, tells that it can give us something that it ultimately will never be able to give us. And I know if you're here today, I don't know your circumstances, but I could imagine there are some people who feel really beat down right now. You, you may be thinking, you know, I, am I that sticky note that, can, that can't stick anymore? And the answer is absolutely no, because God has designed us much better than a sticky note. God has designed us with dignity that he wants to restore in its fullness, whether it's the bonding agent all the way to our humanity. He wants to restore us. He wants to make us whole. He wants to make it complete, and he's provided a way to do that. And so I want to finish by just looking at the path to true satisfaction. The path to true satisfaction 
is choosing Jesus. And you see this. Look at verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it out, throw it out right away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. All right, so what is Jesus saying? He, he's not saying we literally need to cut off our hands and cut out our eyes. So I don't want anybody showing up like a pirate next week. In, in Matthew 18, he says something almost exactly the same, but he adds the foot. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And what Jesus is saying is if, you're, if your eye is leading you to sin, don't look. And if your foot is leading you to sin, don't go. That's the warning here. And if you're saying no to something, you're inherently saying yes to something else. And, and the hope is that we will, whenever presented with something that could become or has become a thought of lustful intent, that we will be able to say no to that because we're saying yes to Jesus. It's, it's not just saying no to something, it's saying yes to something, saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to his design, yes to his kingdom, because the more we say yes to Jesus, the more we operate within the kingdom that he has designed us to operate in, the more we're going to thrive, the happier we're going to be, and the more we're able to enjoy all the gifts he's given us from food to sex. And I could imagine somebody right now saying, well, Jim, I hear you, but I'm not married. I can't have sex. Or, or I am married, and for whatever reason, sex isn't possible in my marriage right now. So are you saying that Jesus has designed something good that I'm excluded from? Well, I first want to say that, that whether you're married or not, like the struggle's real for both parties. <laughs> because, because the... The call here is to resist lustful intent. And that's going to exist whether you're married or whether you're not. It's funny, all the years of college ministry, there's this thinking like, oh, I'm just gonna engage with pornography all these years. I'm gonna get married and then it's just gone. All my lustful thought, all my lustful intentions, they're gone. They don't leave. This is a struggle for everyone, wherever you are. And the question before us, it isn't simply... A life of sex or a life without sex? Because I can tell you what all of us would answer if that was ultimately the, the decision in front of us. The decision in front of us is a life full of Jesus or a life not full of Jesus. That's what we're deciding. And all of us are going to have to sacrifice when we choose a life full of Jesus. Saying yes to Jesus for all of us will mean saying no to other things, but it's in those moments that we say yes to Jesus and no to something that we really want, that Jesus meets us and he ministers to us in a really significant way. And I think you could make a really solid argument from the Bible that especially when we're saying no to things that are good and other people have and that we want and we're saying yes to Jesus, that there he meets us in, in a uniquely special place, in a uniquely sweet place and in a uniquely real way. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he was a single guy and he somehow said, I wish everyone were like I am. And then obviously our Lord Jesus Christ, he knows what it's like to remain celibate to pursue the bride that he loves. And so much of the confusion around human sexuality in our society, it simply comes from not understanding that there's something better. 
when we don't understand that something better, then this becomes the ultimate thing. And this rules our life and this controls us. But we live for something so much better. We know, as the Apostle Paul knows, that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the question is, do we believe that Jesus offers something that lust will never offer us? That lust is lying to us, it is telling us it can give something that it never can give us. It will not satisfy, but Jesus will. And are we willing to say yes to Jesus and continue to pursue him? And and I want to close because in a certain way, because I know that in a room this size, there are those of you who are thinking, this is exactly what I want. I want freedom in this area, but Jim, you don't understand. I have tried over and over again. I've told myself I was gonna stop this and it controls me. I want what you're saying, but I don't know that I'll ever experience it. And if that's you, I wanna tell you two things. I wanna tell you that today can be the day. Today can be the day, but you're losing the battle because you're fighting it alone. The Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. I've said this before, if you put me on a desert island with nothing but me and the Bible, I would not flourish spiritually. We're meant to live in community. We're meant to be encouraged by other people. And so if this is you and this is ravaging you and controlling you, bring somebody into this today, somebody you trust, somebody who cares about you, just say, this is my issue. I I want help. I want to get past it. Because some of the Christians that I admire most in this world are Christians who took a very dark secret and they put it in the light. And when they did that, they experienced freedom that they never thought was possible. But that's the kind of freedom that God wants for us. That's the kind of freedom we should expect to have if we're going to live in the kingdom of God. And that's what makes us different than the scribes and the Pharisees. Because we're not simply saying, look, I haven't done this. I'm better at all of them because I haven't done this thing. We're coming and saying our hearts need help and we know that Jesus is the only answer. He's the only cure for our hearts and we want him. We're gonna say no to these things because we want to say yes to him. That's what this passage is about. And at the end of our service, as we normally do, but I I just want to, I wanna make it clearer today that our elders come down front and we wanna pray for people. We wanna pray for you. If this is your issue, if it's someone close to you is struggling we want you to experience that freedom and so we want to pray with you and so we invite you to not worry about who's looking but at the end of the service come up and just let us pray with you Jesus wants more he wants us to have the kingdom he's brought the kingdom and in this sermon he's showing us the kingdom and the question is are we going to enjoy the kingdom let's pray God, we thank you for the wonderful design of human sexuality, for the wonderful design of sex. And we come before you acknowledging that that lust comes in trying to hijack the design. It tells us there's a, a shortcut to real soul satisfaction. But we know that that's a lie. We know that satisfaction is only ever really going to come through Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that you would just make that real to us that would be real to our hearts, to our souls, to our minds, and that we'd want it. Because the Christian life, it isn't one of just begrudgingly saying no all the time. It's joyfully saying yes. And so we ask this morning that you would reignite a flame in us to say yes to you that would be so bright that it would consume any other thing vying for our attention. 
I thank you for the people in this room. I thank you for those who have gone before me and faithfully taught this word. And we pray that this word would continue to be preached faithfully and that you would do a work that only you can do in our hearts. So we ask this in the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.